Uh, most of you probably know by this time that I have had the privilege of coaching at the local junior high just down the road for nearly a decade now. Coaching, I started with just basketball, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, one of the things, one of the challenges that I face as I coach basketball, and, and it's exasperated this year because last year there was no season, you, you recognize that a lot, of the, a lot of what the kids show up with are skills that have been learned in, you know, a, a, in a school blacktop court or, or at the rec center. And so I want to help them learn. One of the things I want to do is, is help them to learn and not only learn how to do things, but I want to teach them. I want to get them to care about certain things that they don't care about. I want to, I want to change their thinking. Like, I, I want them to understand that it actually matters to learn how to shoot a basketball properly. Right? You, you go to the rec center and kids are throwing it up and, and everyone wants to throw up a three-pointer from a mile away because that's the big sexy shot. And, and, and their, their form is awful. I, I want to help them learn to think about and, and understand that playing defense is actually really cool. You, you, play, you play hard and, and play together as a team and that that is a, an important part of the game of basketball. I... I I need to change their thinking because some of these things are things that these students that I'm coaching, those that make the team, they, they just they don't think that way. They just throw the ball up without thinking about lining up their toe and their knee and their hip and their elbow and following through to the hoop. And so I bark at them over and over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, I tell them this, that, that I, can, I can yell at them all, or I can speak loudly to them all season. If they don't care, if they don't change how they're thinking, if they don't adopt my mindset and say, you know what, shooting with proper form matters, playing defense hard matters, if they don't adopt my mindset, it's all for naught because they're going to go on to high school and they probably won't make the team. If they want to grow as basketball players, if they want to grow as young men, my goal is not only that they would grow as basketball players, but that they'd grow as young men, that they'd, they'd learn discipline, they'd learn hard work, they'd learn how to get rid of bad habits, that they'd learn how to work as a team and play for the team and not just for themselves. Those are the skills that I'm trying to instill, and it begins between the ears. They need to think differently. They need to learn to think like me, their coach. In the text we're turning to this morning, this passage is about how we as disciples of Jesus are to think. Paul's desire is to impact, to change the behavior, the, the way the Philippian believers relate to one another, but he goes at that by going after their thinking. The goal is to change their thinking, to challenge their thinking. Now, it's been a number of weeks since we were last in this letter, and so I want to take a few minutes this morning to review and to remind you of the ground that we have covered to this point to get us back up to speed. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church in Philippi, a city in Europe. This is the first church planted in Europe. Uh, Paul planted this church himself about a dozen years earlier. Remember, Paul was with some, uh, some ministry companions in Troas. He had a, a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And so the next day they sailed across the Aegean Sea, traveled into Philippi, 
and uh, a church was planted. Some of the early members of that church, you might recall, one was Lydia, the, this uh, successful businesswoman who sold purple cloth. A likely a young girl who had been previously uh, possessed by an evil spirit by which she foretold the, the, told the future. And a Philippian jailer, his whole household had, had come to faith and been baptized. And so these were some of the early members that Paul knew, that Paul, Paul had been there. He'd planted this church. He knew these believers, loved them, had a, a close relationship with them. The Apostle Paul himself is writing this letter from prison in Rome. He's been chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 for the last two years. He is waiting trial before Caesar, not knowing for sure what's going to happen. He expects that he will be released, but, but he doesn't know that with certainty. Nonetheless, Paul is characterized by joy. Joy because of the Philippians' partnership with him in the gospel. Joy because even though he is in chains, the gospel is spreading he has had the opportunity to share of Christ with countless Roman soldiers. Caesar's household has heard about the gospel. And so even in chains, the gospel is advancing. And so Paul, though he's in prison, though he does not know what the future holds, he, he is characterized by joy. When we arrived at verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul shifts gears from some of the preliminary things and, and from uh, an update for the Philippians. Remember, they don't have internet and things like that, so they, they really didn't know what was going on in Paul's life, had concerns, so he shared those things. Now he shifts gears from his situation and those preliminary things to dealing with their situation. And you'll recall that there are two things that are shaping the Philippians at this point. One is external opposition. Uh, we don't know the particulars of that. But they are experiencing suffering from the outside, uh, likely related to the fact that Philippi, you recall, is a Roman colony. That is, they, uh, is, we won't go into the history, but they had received citizenship as a gift. And so this city is very pro-Rome. And the cult of the emperor, this uh, acclamation of the emperor as lord, was a major feature of all civic uh, events And so as Christians, as those who put their faith in Jesus and recognize that no, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not Lord, they would have run into, uh, been at loggerheads with their fellow citizens. So something probably related to that reality is causing them to face external suffering. But it's not only external opposition and suffering. Internally, within the church itself, there is tension. There is relationships that are breaking down. There are things that are off the rails, and Paul wants to address that. And there's been numerous places already in the letter, we're just early on still, but where Paul addresses that, he speaks in verse 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. And he's not speaking there of their love for God, though certainly he wants their love for God to grow, but he wants their love for one another to abound more and more. In verse 27, where this shift of focus happens, he explicitly calls them to unity. He writes this, that, that whether he comes to them or hears about them, he, he wants to know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul is concerned about the strife, about the tension within the body, and he wants to address that. I don't know if anyone remembers what came immediately before the passage we're, we're uh, turning to today. Chapter 2, verse 5 to 11 is where we're going. Immediately before this, in verses 1 to 4, Paul commanded the Philippians to make my joy complete. And, and just in case we, we uh, quickly conclude that that's kind of a selfish thing for Paul to say, hey, make me happy. That, the goal isn't, is, it's not like that. Paul's saying, my joy will be complete as I see 
these things happen in you. That is, again, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and one of one mind. He wants unity. He wants love and, and togetherness, oneness for this church. And the paragraph concludes immediately before the text where we're going to pick it up today, verses 3 and 4. Here's how Paul concludes that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The passage that we turn to now is not going off in some other new direction. It is carrying on this same argument, this same topic. So if you have your Bibles, follow along as, we, as I read from verse 5, immediately following those verses. Paul writes this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before I map out what we, where we'll be going this morning, just a few preliminary comments are necessary. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes this about these verses. Here is one of Paul's finest moments. James Montgomery Boyce says, This passage is among the most glorious sections of the New Testament. Uh, not only is this one of Paul's finest moments and one of the glorious parts of the New Testament, but it is also one of the most discussed and debated texts in the New Testament. At issue are some questions around verses 6 to 11. The majority of scholars assume that what we encounter in verses 6 to 11 actually comes from an earlier Christian hymn. That is, the argument is that Paul did not write these verses, that Paul had this hymn that the church used, that they sang, that they, they knew, and Paul used that in his letter, this early hymn in honor of Christ, that it had its own history, that it had been written earlier by others and remember, Paul is writing this letter in around 62 AD, about 12 years, 13 years after he planted this church. But very early, within about 30 years or so of the time of Jesus' earthly life, death, resurrection, and ascension, there are still people who knew Jesus, disciples are still alive, who had been with Jesus, who had had witnessed the crucifixion, who saw the resurrected Jesus, who witnessed the ascension of Christ. They're still alive. This is very early. And so this hymn, if this comes from even from 62, if Paul wrote it, it comes very early, and that's significant for what we'll see. But, but here's what I want us to hear. I, I would be remiss to not mention this debate or this contention that this is an earlier Christian hymn, but at the end of the day, I'm not really good at having water at my feet. That's okay. Now we don't have to worry about it, unless that's going to bug someone. Are we okay? Okay. Where was I? 
Uh, though at times it can be helpful for us in our study of Scripture and in our understanding to, to dive into matters like this and to explore when uh, things came from their historical backgrounds, here's the bottom line for us. We want to deal with the text as God has given it. And so there's no problem if Paul took an earlier hymn and used it, and there's no uh, issue if Paul wrote this now. And so though that is a debate among scholars, and if you've studied this at all, you've no doubt encountered that that whole line of thought. I just want to say, for our purposes today, and as, as we study Scripture in, together, uh, what we want to do is deal with it in its present context. So whether it's original to Paul, or whether it was something that was already present in the church and sung by believers before Paul included it here, it is relevant for our purposes. We want to deal with it in its context here in this letter. So with that groundwork laid, here's what we want to do this morning. Three questions. Uh, what command is given, what narrative is told, and what end is desired? What command is given, what narrative is told, and what end is desired? So what command is given? I want you to remember, as we come to our passage this morning, again, I've already said this, we're not coming to a new topic, not shifting gears. This carries on directly from verses 1 to 4 that we looked at just before Christmas. What we encounter here is, is the continuation. Paul had commanded them there, make my joy complete by being one, by their, by their unity, by do, not doing anything out of selfishness or vain conceit, instead demonstrating humility, looking to the interests of others, valuing others ahead of themselves. That's the behavior that he wants to see from the Philippians. That's the, how he wants to see them relating to one another in the church. Remember, there is strife. There is this internal tension going on in the church. And so here he's saying, this is what I want. Make my joy complete by your unity, by your oneness, by thinking of others, by valuing them, by looking to them, by not being selfish and self-centered. No vanity, no pride and arrogance. That's what he's going after. And here in this passage, he continues. That urging by Paul continues. Here we encounter another imperative, another command. The command that is given in our text is in verse 5, right off the hop. There we read, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. That's a command. It's an imperative in the text. Think like Jesus. Embrace the mindset of Jesus. Adopt the way of thinking of Jesus. Now, it should be obvious to us that Paul is not merely concerned about what's going on between the ears of the Philippians. It's not just his thinking he wants to impact. Just like me as a basketball coach, I don't only want to impact how my athletes think. I, I want to impact their thinking so that it impacts their playing, their working on things. Paul's desire is not just to change their thinking, but that they would think in a particular way so that they would live in a particular way, so that they would relate to one another in a particular way. To that end, Paul points his readers to Jesus as an example, as the illustration of, of how he wants them to think. Think like him. Now note this, this imperative is is not pointing them to Jesus' actions, not here in this imperative. He'll get there. He'll, he'll point us to what Jesus did, what it meant to think like Jesus. But here he's simply saying, I want you to think like Jesus. Adopt the mindset of Jesus. Embrace how he thought. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Think of yourselves 
the way Jesus Christ thought of himself. But there is one other important thing for us to recognize. This mindset that he wants them to adopt is, is one he wants them to adopt in relationships with one another. That is, this is explicitly about community. It's about relationships. What I want to point out, I think we really need to hear this in our culture today. You cannot obey this imperative in isolation. You cannot obey much of what we are called to in Scripture by yourself. As in, the Christian life is not merely a matter of being morally righteous. Yes, we are to obey God in a variety of things that we, you know, don't, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Those are moral things, and that's good, but, but there is so much more to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You cannot be faithful to what we're called to in Scripture in isolation. We need, we are called into community, into relationships. And what Paul says here is specifically a command that requires that we live it in relationships. This is about relationships. In your relationships with one another, think like Jesus. Now, particularly in a season like this where we have different restrictions that, that we have to face because of COVID, we need to work hard. How do, we, how do we obey this? How do we lean into relationships even in the face of restrictions that we need to observe? But we need to understand that the Christian life, a life of discipleship, obeying this command is one that requires relationships in your relationships with one another. This is about community. It's not about just me and Jesus. It's not about simply living a moral life. This command, this is the command, this is the imperative of our passage, and what comes next will flesh out what the thinking of Jesus looks like, or what it looks like for us to think like Jesus. Leads us to our second question, what is the narrative told? Now, perhaps as I read this text, you didn't think that this is very narrative. It didn't look like a story. I mean, it's certainly different than, say, uh, one of the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels or, or one of the stories that we encounter in the book of Acts as we read about the, the spread of the Gospel and the growth of the church through first century uh, Roman Empire. And certainly it's different, but I want to help you see that there is here, in fact, a narrative, a story that is told about Jesus, a, a different perspective, perhaps. James Montgomery Boyce says this, In these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future, and we are admitted to the breathtaking purposes of God in human salvation. In these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future. The, the narrative of this passage begins by pointing us to the pre-incarnate Son, the pre-incarnate Christ. Verse six, verses 6 and 7, we read this. Speaking of Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The doctrine of God includes, involves mystery. The scriptures reveal to us God who is one in three persons. The, the theological term given to that is tri the Trinity. God exists as a triune God, one God in three persons. 
That, that God is one and yet somehow God is, has within himself a relationship. Of, there's this plurality, this relationship that exists within the heart of God, this relationship of love. And, and that, that is beyond our comprehension, but that is where Scripture leads us, that God is one in three persons. The doctrine of God involves mystery. Here, Paul leads us back in time to a time before the incarnation, to a time before Christ came into the world, to the time that John speaks of in his prologue to his gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul says that Jesus Christ was in very nature God. That Christ is the pre-incarnate Son. That the Christ before the incarnation was God, was with God. Before he took the nature of a servant, Christ was in very nature God. A New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes this, what the earliest followers of Christ had come to believe, of course, on the basis of his resurrection and ascension, was that the one whom they had known as truly human had himself known prior existence in the form of God, not meaning that he was like God, but really not, but that he was characterized by what was, by what was essential to being God, that Christ, before the incarnation, was already, already was, and that he was God. If you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. And I want to take a moment just to say something to you. There are many people in our world today who, who when confronted with the question, who is Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? They, they come to conclusions like, well, Jesus was a good, a good man. Jesus was a, a good teacher, a wise moral teacher. But what I want to make very clear to you this morning is that the Bible, this book does not give us that option. This passage that Paul wrote, this letter that Paul wrote a mere 30 years after Jesus' earthly life with still people alive who, who saw Jesus die, who, who saw the resurrected Christ, saw him ascend. Perhaps these verses 6 to 11 come from even earlier, closer to that time. But, but what is clear is that the Bible, the, the Scriptures do not give us the option. You cannot take this book seriously and conclude that Jesus was just a man, that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. The Bible declares that Christ was the pre-incarnate Son of God, that He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. Part of this mysterious triune God. Again, Boyce writes this, these verses bring us near to the bedrock of early Christian faith and preaching. The idea that Christ was divine was not some later invention of Christians centuries later. This was a conclusion they were forced to. And as they encountered Christ and his resurrection and ascension. The Bible is clear. In Jesus we encounter God in human flesh, the preexistent Son, the Word who was with God. The word who was God. That's where Paul begins this narrative of Christ. And having pointed the Philippians to the pre-existent Christ who was in the very nature God before the incarnation, he then speaks of Christ's incarnation, Christ becoming 
human. That's the second part of the narrative. Christ, very God of very God, with God in the beginning, did not grasp. He did not seize what was rightfully his. He did not insist on what was rightfully his. He did not exhibit selfishness, but rather in humility, out of love, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Christ condescended. Christ, the preexistent one. Christ, the Word with God, the Word who was God. Christ, who stood over all things. Christ, through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. Christ, who stands over all of creation, over all of humanity, over the cosmos. Christ, who stands over the heavenly host, took on the role of a servant, a slave, a doulos. In obedience to the Father, Jesus humbled himself and became a man. He put on flesh. (coughs) Should be safe there. (coughs) God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. But angels are not. (coughs) With that thought in mind... James Montgomery Boyce imagines this. I want to read this paragraph. (coughs) (coughs) Something like rumors of Christ's descent to earth had been in circulation around heaven and that for weeks the angels had been contemplating the form in which Christ would enter human history. Would he appear in a blaze of light bursting into the night of the Palestinian countryside, dazzling all who beheld him? Perhaps he would appear as a mighty general marching into pagan Rome, as Caesar did when he crossed the Rubicon. Perhaps he would come as the wisest of the Greek philosophers, putting the wisdom of Plato and Socrates to foolishness by a supernatural display of intellect. But what is this? There is no display of glory, no pomp, no marching of the feet of the heavenly legions. Instead, Christ lays his robes aside, the glory that was his from eternity. He steps down from the heavenly throne and becomes a baby in the arms of a mother in a far eastern colony of the Roman Empire. Christ, God, the Son, became human. He condescended. He left glory and became one of us. The narrative of this passage does not end there. In fact, Christ's condescension does not end there. Verse 8, we read this, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Almighty One, the Sovereign over all creation, the Creator and Sustainer of the cosmos, not only became human, but out of love for us, He became our substitute. He willingly took your place and mine. He willingly died a shameful, humiliating, not to mention excruciating death as our substitute to bear the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin, for our rebellion. 
Please understand, there is nothing noble about dying on a cross. Uh, Here's what Moses Silva writes. Death by crucifixion was considered by the Romans the most degrading penalty. They came up with the most painful, most humiliating, humiliating way to kill someone. Strip them naked, nail them to a cross, and they suffocate over hours. Utterly humiliating. Silva goes on and saying, Philippian criminals, if sentenced to death, would have been treated more honorably as Roman citizens for whom decapitation was the capital punishment. Quick and over. Christ became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus went to the cross. He died this death, and and this this is the scandal of the cross. To the Jews... The cross was a sign of being under God's curse. It was a sign of, of, of utter weakness. To the Greeks, it was a sign of utter foolishness. Paul talks about that in his letter to the First Corinthians. The cross is foolishness and weakness. You, you, don't, you don't defeat your enemies. You don't win a victory by letting your enemies kill you. Yet Jesus humbled himself. God put on flesh and became human. And he went to the cross and bore the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin, for our rebellion. So that all who put their faith in Jesus might be washed, cleansed, made new. Not not only forgiven, but also clothed with his perfection. Credited with his perfect obedience. So the Father looks at us those who put our faith in Jesus and sees the perfection of Christ. That is the glory of the good news. That is the glory of what Christ has done. He became foolish. He became weak. He was stripped naked, beaten, mocked, nailed to a cross, and died an excruciating death. And not only was there that, but on the cross he experienced the abandonment that our sins deserved as the Father turned his back and Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for you and for me to redeem us, to rescue us. The narrative of this text is still not done. It does not end there with Christ on the cross. It ends with the exaltation of Christ. Listen as I read again verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ is exalted to the highest place. He is given the name above every name. He And he alone is Lord over lords. It's not Caesar who is Lord. It is Jesus who is Lord. And he will be acknowledged as Lord by all. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Now, this is not some picture of universal worship. This is a picture of universal recognition of his sovereignty, that it is Jesus who is Lord. That it is Jesus who is King. That it is Jesus and only Jesus who deserves our worship. One scholar, those of you in high school may enjoy this, one scholar reads this narrative and says, this is the great parabola. Did I say that right? It's been a long time since I did math. 
the great parabola of Scripture. Parabola is a, is a curved line, right? Christ in glory, humiliated, goes down, becomes human, goes to the cross, and then he's exalted. That line goes up. The great parabola of Scripture. This narrative of Christ, the preexistent Son, the incarnation, his death on the cross, and his exaltation. What a powerful word offered to this suffering church in Philippi. Whatever opposition they were facing, whatever suffering they were experiencing, here is a powerful reminder of what is absolutely true. A reminder of who they are and whose they are. Already they know Christ. Already they are redeemed. Already they are secure in Him. And one day they will know that in all its fullness and glory. One day, the exalted Christ before Him, all will acknowledge His sovereignty. One day, all that they hope for will be known fully. Leads us to question three. What end is desired? Though there is a great deal of, what we could say, doctrine or theology in this text, though we see Christ going to the cross and we remember His salvation, His redemptive work on the cross, and it's always good to see that, to be reminded of that, and no doubt the Philippians would have been reminded of that, but Paul's goal here is not first and foremost theology or doctrinal. Listen, Fee writes, Paul's primary concern is not theological as such, but illustrative. Paul is pointing the Philippians to Jesus not saying, hey, Jesus died for you. I mean, he, he's saying that, but he's saying, what's his command? What's his imperative? Think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Then he shows us how Jesus, the, the preexistent son, condescended, became human, went to the cross out of love for us, out of desire for us, not seizing what was his rightfully, not acting out of selfishness, not looking to his own interests, but looking to ours, and he went and humbled himself even to death on the cross. And now he's the exalted one. Paul is saying his end desire is that the Philippians would think like Jesus. That they would recognize the truth about Jesus, what Jesus has done for them, and that they would be transformed by this Christ. That the Christian life, a life of discipleship, is, is to be shaped by Jesus. It's not Jesus just saving us so that one day we go to heaven. No, we, we are to become more and more like Jesus because, you see, sin dehumanizes us. I don't know if you think in those terms. We were created, as women and men, we were created in the image of God. We were to reflect the character of God. We, we are to be like Christ. And Christ, in this narrative, we see the very character of God. We see not a God who grasps, not a God who is self-centered. We see a God who humbles himself out of love for us, out of desire to, to do what we need, to meet our need. And so we were created as his image bearers. Our sin has screwed that up. It, that the image in us has been marred, but Christ came to restore that. And so when we put our faith in Christ, we are being restored to those who would reflect his image, which means we need to think like Jesus so that we act like Jesus. Now, do not be afraid. This is not some kind of backdoor way to say, hey, this is works righteousness. 
This is about what Christ has done, that we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are clothed with his righteousness through Christ. That is a gift of God's grace. But when we experience that, we are to be transformed and become more like him because that, that actually makes us more human, more who we were created to be. Paul is going after the Philippians' thinking because he wants to see the Philippians relating to one another change. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ. Emulate Christ. Think like Christ. Imitate Christ in your relationships with one another. So I want to encourage you, those who are here, those of you who are online, you have to use your imaginations, but, but look around. Actually, like, turn around. Like, look, look around. We are the body of Christ. In your relationships with one another. In our relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ. Adopt his way of thinking. Not grasping. Not looking to our interests. Not acting in selfish ways, self-centered ways. But humbling ourselves. Sacrificing. Out of care, out of love for those sitting around us. For those who are with us online. For those online, for one another. like In your relationships with one another. Paul's Desire is not simply to change their thinking. It's to change their thinking so that he changes their relating to one another. This church is currently enduring both external opposition but also internal strife. And his desire is to see them stand as one. To be unified. To stand unified in the one spirit. Contending as one for the gospel. And if they are to do that, they need to think like Jesus. They need to have the mind of Jesus. Imagine with me, what would it look like if Christ would lead us deeper into obedience to this command? What might it look like in your life and mine if we really behold the narrative of Christ, how, how God, the the pre-existent son left heaven, left glory, humbled himself, became a man, and not only that, but then went to the cross, suffered, was mocked for us. What would that look like for me to think like Jesus? What would it look like for you to think like Jesus? What would it look like if progressively by the, the power of the Spirit in light of what Christ has done that we are his redeemed daughters and sons? What would it look like if, if that really took deep root and we were transformed by it? How would our lives, how would our community look different? That's what Paul is driving for here. Emphatically, passionately, Paul points them to Jesus. He points them to Jesus who is their redeemer first. And in this passage, he holds him up and says he's, he's not only our redeemer, but he is an illustration of what we are to be like. He is the one who empowers us by his spirit. But this is the goal. 
This is, we are to be women and men who are shaped by Christ, that we think like Christ, that our lives would reflect the narrative of Christ's life, that we would humble ourselves, that we would look to the interests of others, that we would suffer and sacrifice, knowing that at the end, just as Christ has been exalted, there will be a glorious vindication. May God work in us for his glory and for our joy. May he so shape our thinking that our lives and our community would be radically transformed in this way. Let me pray. Jesus, we marvel. We marvel before you. We marvel at what you have done, your humbling yourself, stepping out of glory to come, out of love for us, to redeem us from our sin, to rescue us, to, to, to grant us the gift of life, to fix what we could never restore. And Jesus, you are the exalted one, and I pray that we might see that as well, that you are above all kings and that we would live with confidence as those who are redeemed. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd work in our hearts, that you would shape our thinking and through that, that you would shape our relating. For your glory we pray, amen.